0: Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe, a weekly program about books, research, and the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. My guest today is Bailey Van Hook, professor of art history and co-director of the MA Program in Material, Culture, and Public Humanities at Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University. We're going to be talking by telephone about an artist who should be familiar to anyone who has ever stayed at Vassar's Alumni House, Violet Oakley, and about Professor Van Hook's new book, Violet Oakley and Artists' Life, published by Delaware University Press in 2016. Hello, Bailey. Hello. It's great to have you on the show. So, first off, could you describe the book as a matter of genre? I know this is a biography, and who was your intended audience? Well,
1: first it would be just people who love biography, which I do. Uh I read my first one when I was about 11 or 12 years old, and I've continued to do so my whole life. And actually, as part of the preparation for this book, I read a lot more biographies of especially European and American women Mm-hmm. who had been born, I said, roughly 25 years in either direction of Violet Oakley. And it included Gertrude Bell, who was an explorer, Emily Post, the Queen Mum. I cheated a bit on that because mm-hmm. she was a little bit older. <laughs> Willa Cather, uh, Edith Wharton, Beatrice Potter. So there are quite a few women in that category. Uh, uh, beyond that, I would say, it's. I mean, I am an academic. American studies, people who are interested in the Gilded Age, American art history.
0: So anyway, the, the book functions for me then as an historical monograph. You know, I'm an art librarian on a certain somewhat overlooked genre in American art. The beginning of the twentieth century and the mural painters who preceded the great muralists of that later period in the thirties and forties, like Diego Rivera and the artists working for the WPA, which he didn't participate in, I guess. So, so the question, I suppose, is: Is this work a kind of deeper investigation of your first book on mural painters?
1: Well, actually, this is my third book. The it first one uh, I wrote, yeah, first one I wrote, came out of my dissertation. It uh-huh. was on. Images of Women in Late 19th Century and Early 20th Century American Painting. And I had a whole chapter on mural painting, uh-huh. so I got more interested in it and realized it was a neglected area, that whole uh, late uh-huh. 19th, early 20th century. So I wrote a book on that called The Virgin and the Dynamo. Uh-huh. And then I got interested in Oakley, who's the major muralist of that movement. And I realized that you know she deserved a biography and one hadn't been written It's often said that academics, when they write biographies, it's their third book.
2: Uh Because
1: the the first one they do to get tenure, the second one to get promoted, and then they feel like they can do what they want. (laughs) So it was also kind of a challenge for me, a different kind of writing. Uh Uh, If you say it's like an art historical monograph, I don't know if I was completely successful. But I just thought it had a, a different tone than an yeah. art histori- historical book, so yeah, um, yeah, that's that was true. a challenge. It's a real oh.
0: biography because her life is so interesting, but it does open a window into this period and the uh, art scene of the, you know, the beginning of the 20th century in the United States, and especially in Philadelphia New York area.
1: Right, right. <laughs>
0: So it's also about a prominent female artist who forms something of a kind of colony of women artists around her uh, at the beginning of the 20th century at Cogsley and her uh, earlier estate at the Red Rose Studio. So I wonder if you could talk about how her gender played into her career in a period when it was unusual, frankly, for a woman to earn a living as an artist or really earn a living at all.
1: Well, it was very important that she was an illustrator, Uh um, because this period of time, some people call it the golden age of illustration. It partly had to do with the invention of the halftone process, Uh which made it much easier to be an illustrator. You didn't have to engrave, do a wooden engraving. So it opened up to a lot of artists, but especially women artists. And there was a huge growth spurt of women artists in the 1890s as a result, And I think part of it was also that you could connect it with that whole idea of separate spheres, Uh you know, that women were inside Uh the home, domestic, men were outside the home. Because this is essentially something you could do at home, and you could correspond with your editors by mail, you could send your things by mail, so you didn't really have to go out into the business sphere as Uh much. So I think that was important in the number of women illustrators. Also, they lived. The three illustrators and a and a friend lived together at the Red Rose in Coxley. And I think that one of them was not an illustrator, and she, she performed as kind of the wife. You mm-hmm. know, if you've ever read a room of one's own. Uh,
0: yes, um, Virginia Woolf. Yeah,
1: that yeah, you you know, every every woman needs a needs a needs a wife to handle the details.
0: Yeah, I think um, uh, Linda um, Nafzlin so uh, may, may touch on uh, that. Yeah, Linda
1: Nafzlin, yes, made that point too. You're absolutely right. Why have there been no great women artists? So they had somebody who basically ran the household and hired the servants and did the shopping and everything like that. So it became possible for these three women to devote themselves almost wholly to their careers. So that was a very unusual setup.
0: It was a time also, apart from book publishing and the, and the opportunities that afforded for illustration, there was a huge explosion of uh, periodical literature and periodical readerships wasn't there at this time. So there were journals that needed illustration. And so there was a market, I guess. Um,
1: yes, definitely. Century, yeah. Harper's, McClure's, Women's Home Companion, yeah. I mean, numerous ones, yes. Yeah. You're absolutely right.
0: Yeah. There was photography, but it wasn't as common to have photographic illustration.
1: Not for stories. For non fiction articles, definitely, but yeah. not for stories. So there was still a market for illustrators for those.
2: Yeah.
1: And also so, posters and things. I mean it was the it was the golden age for the poster too. Or uh, yeah, uh, the yeah. art poster. Often the poster would accompany would be the same as the cover of a book and uh-huh. it would illustrate the book. Yeah. So,
0: so How did Oakley decide to become an artist? I mean, I know there were other artists in the family who served as role models for her, especially women.
1: Yes, she would have said that it was in her, her blood, yeah. you might say it was in her, her gene <laughs> yeah. to be an artist. But yeah. At one point, said she had 14 professional artists in her family, and uh-huh. that included both her grandfathers, who uh-huh. probably knew each other yeah. at the National Academy of Design, yeah. but also, as you mentioned, many women artists. Her mother had been an artist before her marriage. Three of her aunts had been. One of her aunts actually had a studio in New York City in the 1860s, uh-huh. which is almost unheard of. So they provided role models. Absolutely right it was never questioned in her family that she could be an artist yeah. so that was very positive for her
0: yeah and then she studied with Howard Pyle expressly to become an illustrator didn't she is a famous illustrator American illustrator
1: yes he was sort of the capstone I think uh-huh. of her education she started out at the Art Students League uh-huh. she also studied at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts also in Paris but importantly Howard Pyle offered this course in illustration, it was the first in America, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and he actually offered it first to the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, but they said illustration is not a fine art, so he went to Drexel, and that's where he offered his class. So she and also her sister in the beginning started out at Drexel.
0: Well, I think in Frank Sample, of course, Necessity is the Mother of Invention. Uh, she and her sister are put in a position where they have to work to support the family early on, and they are artists, so that must have been a great spur to her development, the fact that there was this need there for her to produce, uh, yes?
1: Yeah, she came from a very, you know, pretty comfortable upper-middle-class background. She was raised in New Jersey. In South Orange and her father had a nervous breakdown in 1894. I think it was probably the result of the financial panic of Uh, 1893. He worked downtown near Wall Street and he lost almost all his investments uh and uh, he had a breakdown and the family, the mother had to be supported and Violet and her sister Hester went out and and Hester was primarily a writer and Violet, of course, an illustrator, so they had to pound the pavements basically, to make money. And yeah. they were both very talented, and pretty soon after they decided to become professionals, they were financially successful uh-huh. and able to support their mother and yeah. lived in New York at first, and then they moved to Philadelphia. Yeah.
0: Well, they could get jobs as illustrators, uh, you know, sort of on the fly, but she then gets a major commission, doesn't she, in New York, to decorate a church?
1: Everybody always commented on her illustrations that she had a very strong design sense Uh and several of her teachers suggested that maybe stained glass with an emphasis on outline would be a direction she could go in. So she got a letter from a stained glass manufacturer offering basically to create a stained glass window for her Mm -hmm. if she designed it and she she did and she thought it was just a Mm one-off and she didn't realize that it was actually a competition. Uh that he took the window to be seen by a rector of a church Uh called All Angels, which Uh was on the west side of Manhattan. And she got this commission. It was a commission. It was for an altarpiece and a mural and four stained glass windows. So because it was in New York, it was covered uh, Uh in all the art press as well as the New York newspapers, and it was almost universally praised. Uh Um, So that was very important in getting her in the public eye, as somebody who's capable, basically, of doing this huge commission, and also painting a mural on the walls of this church. So that was a very important step. And I can't imagine her later career if she hadn't gotten Um, that lucky
0: break. So is that work still standing? I mean, is the church still there in New York?
1: No, it's not. It's um, not. That's that was too a big bad. disappointment yeah. early yeah. on when I, <laughs> when I uh, was doing my research. I went to find it, and it had been uh, uh.
0: the original one
1: had been torn down. Yeah. And too bad, and that pretty much the murals as well as the stained glass windows were lost.
0: Yeah, that's too um, bad. Yeah. So
1: we don't have them now. We have some photographs and we have some sketches, but unfortunately, we don't have the. Uh, the actual artwork.
0: Yeah, it is too bad. That's a very New York mentality, you know. Historic preservation is almost non-existent, you know. If it's not new, you can knock it down and put something up newer, you know. so uh, Right, exactly, you know, exactly. So. Unlike Boston, they say that
1: dates yeah. from Pennsylvania Station when that was torn uh, down. Yes, yeah. uh, uh, was, uh, yeah.
0: So, and then she gets another break uh, when she's commissioned to do the murals for the Pennsylvania State Capitol.
1: Uh, yeah, actually, only for one room. It was quite a sizable room, but <clears throat> it was the governor's reception room, and the bulk of the commission went to when Austin Abbey. Who was an also mm-hmm. an illustrator and a muralist, but yeah. she got that one room. The architect was very supportive, and first of all, he was hiring people who were resident of the, or or born in the state of Pennsylvania. So
0: uh-huh. that's uh-huh. kind
1: of another lucky break that she yeah. had recently moved to, oh, to Philadelphia.
0: Yeah, yeah. Where, Abby wasn't born in Pennsylvania, though. He's a British Pre-Raphaelite, yes.
1: Nobody was born in Pennsylvania. Oh, I had no, no idea. Was. Okay, yeah. I'll see. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he was actually a very good friend of Howard Pyle. Oh, so was that's he? That's another connection uh-huh. there.
0: Anyway, she does get this break and it's a little unusual And that not only are there not many working women artists who are able to earn their living outside of illustrators, but there aren't very many female muralists at this time were there and it was a bit of an anomaly because it was felt, wasn't it, that it took a certain amount of strength and a dexterity to be able to do murals? Yes,
1: exactly. I mean, it was yeah. a big job, you know, and uh, huge canvases and big brushes, and so the sort of gender prejudices uh-huh. of the period yeah. precluded women being hired for yeah. this job. But, so it was an amazing coup when she got there. She was only 28 years old. So it was covered in the press all over the country, actually, when she yeah. got this commission. So she finished it in four years. She actually traveled to Europe. She had never, I don't think she'd ever seen many murals, actually. She'd seen a couple in the United States, probably the Library of Congress, the yeah. Boston Public Library, which was a Edward yes. Austin Abbey commission.
0: Yeah, those murals are but still there,
1: yeah, she'd never been to Italy, though. Oh. So even though she had been to France, she had oh. been to England. So she traveled to Italy to look at all the great murals, and then she went to London to learn about William Penn. She mm-hmm. went to the British Museum, and then she also went to Oxford, where Penn had studied. So yeah. pretty extensive research. What was considered the norm for a muralist? I mean, you really had to go into depth into what you were going to paint before yeah. you could conceive of how you were going to paint it. So she did that and came back. And uh, the mural she did, the founding of the state of Liberty Spiritual, that's mm-hmm. kind of typical of
2: yeah. <laughs>
1: her kind of language. Depicted everything from the beginning of the basically the Protestant Reformation through Penn's landing mm-hmm. and his first sight of Pennsylvania. But that was the first project. But then Abby died suddenly in 1911, and she got the commission that he had had Mm -hmm. for the Senate and also the Supreme Court. So Mm -hmm. actually that took her all the way to Mm 1927. So it was was Uh, a project that really dominated 25 years of her life.
0: Penn becomes a kind of living spirit for her, doesn't he? And and this seems to happen with her. She's, She's impressionable. She strikes me that way, you know, the way you describe her, in that ideas and even historical narratives become almost like a mythology of some kind that she buys into. So, that, Well, she is a muralist. She can reify these things, but they become a sort of living presence that she really invests in as a kind of, almost like a kind of faith. Isn't that the case? I mean, I, I get that sense with Penn and the whole foundation of Pennsylvania here. Yeah, she
1: was really taken with Penn. She, yeah. she read a biography of Penn, actually, oh. one of the first things that she did. Yeah. And of course, Quakerism was something that very much appealed to her, even though she herself wasn't a Quaker. Mm-hmm. His very deep spirituality, also the fact that he had so many obstacles placed in his path. She was very admiring of him for that reason. And also, importantly, he had proposed what he called a parliament of nations. Uh-huh. Uh, she found that in his writings. That was In the 1680s. And to her, that was very, very appealing because his emphasis on world peace, basically, Mm -hmm. and her interest in it began with her reading of Penn.
0: We'll come back to that, but it seems like a paradigm for the contemporary world, her notion there, and Penn's notion of a parliament of nations. And of course, the EU is now, with Brexit, struggling with the same ideas. More things change. Right, exactly. Yeah, so anyway, another one of her sort of spiritual guides here then becomes. Mary Baker Eddy, who was an influence?
1: Yes, I mean, that actually preceded Penn. That came out of her father's sickness, Uh his illness. She was going to try and heal him, basically, Uh in the words of Christian science. So she became a Christian science convert about 1900. And she was very typical of Christian science converts at the time. They generally were white, middle class, educated, cultured and often female, and she persisted in this even though her family was much opposed to it. And I think she kind of identified with Penn also for that reason, because of what she had to endure, she would have thought, because of her beliefs in Christian science. She saw Penn as enduring because of his... Quakerism, Uh, uh so.
0: She was sickly herself as well, wasn't she? At least as a child, especially.
1: Yeah, she had asthma. She suffered terribly. I mean, there are notes in her mother's diary of Violet being kept home because of her asthma, Uh, uh and doctors being called in, and, and she attributed her healing completely to Christian science. So that doesn't happen till a little bit later, but nonetheless, it was a very important event in her life, yeah. and she actually documented it and sent it to the mother church in yeah. Boston, as huh. Christian scientists were encouraged to do.
0: Mary Baker Eddy, she was just a generation earlier, wasn't she? I mean, she wasn't an early 19th century figure; late 19th century, am I right there? Or, uh,
1: yeah, in early in early uh, 20th actually. Early um, 20th
0: century,
1: yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Violet Oakley actually saw her. I don't remember uh, the year. It was yeah. maybe 1902, 1903. Yeah. She saw her speak and then she evidently rode by in a carrot and Oakley yeah. did a pencil sketch ah. of her.
0: Interesting to get into this mindset, you know, in a way, because the whole movement there reminds me of the sort of alternative health movement of today a bit. It's throwing up its hands at conventional medicine and and the problems with it and looking for alternatives to healing. In this case, it's prayer, not herbs and that sort of thing, but even so, it's a very kind of New Pulse Woodstock way of looking at the world. No, really, you you're absolutely it right. It's, or, yeah. you know, it's sort of
1: like the mind-spirit working together, uh-huh. I mean, that's something that we talk about, mindfulness now and yeah. so on, but uh-huh. that was extremely important. And she thought that you could, uh, and Mary Rebecca, Eddie thought that you could heal somebody if you believed, mm-hmm. you know, if you believed in the doctrine of healing, if you believed that it could happen. And she could, you know, when her father wasn't healed, he eventually died, not eventually, but soon after. So she converted uh-huh. in 1900. She could say it was because nobody else believed. He didn't believe, and the family didn't believe, and so she wasn't strong enough, basically, yeah. to carry that belief forward.
0: Yeah. So she went through her life with a lot of raised eyebrows, even in the family, didn't she? But yes, yeah,
1: yeah. So, yes, she did, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And, and she she did it. She was a very spirited person, but also, uh-huh. I think, uh, very stubborn. I could be somewhat uh, dogmatic, yeah, yeah. and I think that What's, family and friends soon tired of listening yeah. to her talk about it. Yeah, that served her, her
0: in her story. art business, though, that stubbornness, I think. So, um, Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely, yes. So can you talk about the student who then would become Violet Oakley's companion, Edith Emerson, and the role she plays in Oakley's later life?
1: Well, Edith Emerson started out as her student. After Oakley's success at the Pennsylvania Capitol, she was asked to teach at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. She was mm-hmm. only the second woman who was asked to do so. So Edith Emerson was originally her student. She was mm-hmm. uh, 14 years younger. And Oakley asked her to be her studio assistant, and then she started doing some secretarial work. And in 1917, which was, I think, about three years after they had met, Violet Oakley's mother died. Mm-hmm. And so she invited Edith Emerson to come and live with her. And Edith Emerson basically became the wife that we were talking about earlier. Uh-huh. She did all of the details of the household, and Violet Oakley paid her. But eventually, they became a very deep friendship. They traveled together, lived together, and so on. They might have called it a Boston marriage
2: Uh um, at at the the time. time, uh,
1: Today, we might say they were life partners. You know, I went back and forth. I don't think that they had a physical relationship, but other people disagree. Oakley was very religious, you Uh know, and a number of people who are Christian scientists have talked to me about it and said that it would have been completely against her for religion to no. get physically involved no. with a woman but anyway they were very close and they they loved each other so there was no doubt of that and Edith Emerson stayed with her until her death till Oakley's death in 1961 mm-hmm. Emerson went on to live till I can't remember, 1988 or something. Actually, 1980, I think, but uh, much much later.
0: Is there an oral history there of some kind? Did Edith Emerson talk about Oakley in her later life? Uh,
1: Oh, yes. Well, she wrote a a series of articles just Uh for the local newspaper, the Germantown Crier. Uh And They're fascinating, full of details Uh about uh, about their life together. So I also went through Oakley's papers. There were 47 boxes of Uh papers. So there were a lot of details about their everyday life there, what they ate, the yeah. theater they went to, and this, this kind of thing. So yeah.
0: Yeah, there's she, a lot out there. She got a commission herself to do a movie theater in Philadelphia, is it? It
1: was a uh, repertory theater.
0: Oh, uh, was it? Uh, uh-huh.
1: Play and Players. Yes, she got a number of other commissions, but her career was always secondary to Oakley's. So, uh-huh. um, she was never as well known. She eventually went off on her own. Uh, they were always very hard up financially. It was always sort of sad. But uh, Edith Emerson went off and got a job at the Woodmere Art Museum. Uh She became the the curator, and she yeah. did that for thirty years or uh-huh. something. So she basically had a nine to five and would come home yeah. to Oakley and take care of all those uh, other details yeah, of, yeah. of Oakley's
2: life.
0: That theater, Play and Players Theater, is still there, isn't it? Uh, I mean, her murals are yes. still seeable. Uh, yes, definitely. You can see them online. They're really absolutely fascinating. So
1: Emerson's family was her father was an archaeologist. Uh, her mother was a classical pianist. So they came from a kind of cultured kind of background that would have appealed to Oakley, definitely.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and they weren't horrified themselves that she had taken up with uh, Oakley. Uh, they didn't seem to be. To say, no,
1: uh, they were horrified by the Christian Science.
0: Oh, okay. Aspect. Yeah, I as Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yes, yes. yeah. Woodmere wasn't there just an exhibit on Oakley there in last year or so, major exhibit. Um,
1: yes, there was. There yeah. was. Um, Woodmere has a lot of her art as well as Edith Emerson, and it was curated by another Oakley scholar, Patricia Rieke, and she had actually known Edith Emerson, Uh so she put together that exhibition, I think it was about a year and a half ago. Uh
0: So you mentioned with her asthma, her mother didn't want her to go out of the house, so she didn't go to college as her sister did, who attended Vassar, actually. So can you talk about that? How did she get the Vassar commission? What did her sister have to do with it? Uh, For the new alumni house, she's responsible for the mural and actually the whole interior of the living room. Uh
1: Right. It was, it was kind of a complicated story. Her, her sister had been the class of 1891 and uh-huh. she actually died in 1905. Uh-huh. And this was just a traumatic experience for Oakley because she and her sister were very close. And she never spoke of it or wrote about it. And I think that was a measure of how how uh-huh. tragic it was. And also, of course, her belief in Christian science it would test those beliefs because she couldn't heal her sister so anyway Hester her was a sister Hester Oakley's roommate at Vassar was Uh, Louise Lawrence, later Louise Lawrence Meggs, Mm -hmm. and uh, the family. She was the daughter of Sarah Lawrence, by the way, uh, of Sarah Lawrence College. (laughs) So she was at that time in the early nineteen twenties when the alumni house was built. Louise Meggs was the president of the alumni association. Uh So biologically, was she was. She's a little of an operator in the sense, and she often was in her life. But mm-hmm. Louise Meggs had an idea about donating something to Vassar in the name of this class and maybe something that mentioned or memorialized Violet Oakley's sister. Mm-hmm. And she thought originally of a sculpture, and of course Violet Oakley convinced her, no, it had to be a painting, and why not a painting for the new alumni house that uh-huh. was being built? So she worked together with the architect. They had to do some changes in the alumni house. They had to change the orientation of it a little bit to incorporate her painting. So it was dedicated in 1924, and it was—it's actually a triptych, um, not a not a mural—was uh, given in memory of Hester Oakley by the class of 1891.
0: Yeah, beautiful thing it is. Very mesmerizing. Uh, there's a sort of a—you can feel her faith in her ideas in the work. I mean, she has a kind of integrity in her work or a spiritual force that defines a sort of unity there, isn't there? And um, it's re- really a wonderful thing. I mean, I always just mesmerize it. It's based on revelations, isn't it? But very much promoting the, what's the word that I'm looking for, the redemptive power of women in uh, human culture.
1: Yeah, and- I think it's important, it's important that, uh, that there, the book of Revelation is discussed in Science and Health, so, oh, yeah. oh, in Mary yeah. Baker Eddy's book. So I think that the subject would have appealed to Oakley partly for that reason. Uh-huh. But also, Christian scientists believe in the dual nature of the divine, that mm-hmm. it's both male and female. Uh-huh. So I think that that's very much played out, I guess, in that mural, with the woman clothed by the sun and yeah. the fact that she's, she's clutching the baby. Yes, I think yeah. that that would be an important explanation, I guess, of what is... Written in Revelation,
0: yeah, saving the baby from the dragon below, yes, and um,
1: yes, definitely, and raising definitely. him up.
0: And this is the child who will rule all nations, also. So you know, you can see pen in it here. I mean, yes. in his yes. internationalist uh, leaning. So
1: I think that the fact that it's a maternal image and the fact that it's for a woman's college, yes, art, uh-huh. I've always found that that was something that. Maybe I wouldn't have chosen it, maybe not appropriate. But the doctrine of educated motherhood was Uh very important at that time. I mean, Uh that was one of the reasons women went to college. They went to college to educate their children, especially their male children. So it could be connected with that also.
0: It resonates with other works of art that were done at the time on campus like the uh, Elizabeth Cornaro window in the library which uh, depicts the granting of the first PhD to a woman in Padua in the 17th century.
2: Well,
1: you know, Violet Oakley was always a supporter of female Uh suffrage. That was important Uh to her. And of course the the women were given the right to vote in 1919. uh, It was only five years before the the, uh, Alumni House was was open. Yeah. So I think that's important also. Yeah.
0: Vassar students were very involved in a suffragette movement at the time also. So also there's this little image of John eating the book that fascinates me as a medievalist in, in the triptych in in the alumni house living room there. And it struck me as self referential in a way in that Violet regards herself something like a prophet, doesn't she? Like John, you know the author of Revelations here. And that she feels she has a message and it needs to get out and that it's something that can actually improve a lot of people.
1: No, definitely. All through her writings, she spoke of herself as a prophet and Uh her work as prophetic. And she also often used the word sacred. Uh I mean, she was a woman who had a very deep sense of her own role, basically, Uh as an artist in society. Uh And and so, uh, you know, the educational nature of, and the inspiring nature of what she was doing, of her art, was always extremely important to her.
0: Yeah, high expectations regarding what the artist is about there, I think. So anyway, uh, it's not just the uh, triptych that she does there for the living room, is it? It's the whole ensemble. It's a sort of conskissammed work, that room, uh, you know, in its earlier rendition, you know, when she first finished it. And I wonder if you could talk about that, about what went into the room, and also the opening ceremony, which I've always been fascinated with, because there was a lot of that kind of ceremony going on at Vassar at the time, and all over the country, you know, there were Pageants, and there were these tableaux were yeah, right? Tableaux, yeah, tableaux, yeah, yeah. So. so there was a ceremony, wasn't there?
2: There
1: was a ceremony, and and, and uh, Oakley loved pomp. Uh-huh, you know, yeah, she loved anything yeah. where there were there were ropes and
2: uh-huh.
1: rolls, and yeah. you know the ceremony. But she, as, as far as I know, she designed the ceremony along with Louise Lawrence Meggs, uh-huh. and there mm-hmm. were people. There were trumpeters. There were torchbearers. Uh-huh scrolls, candles, somebody held the deed to the house, and they all marched up to the door, and two of the donors, their daughters, participated, and then Mm. Louise Lawrence, Meg's daughter, whose Uh name was Hester, also participated, and somebody carried the deed, somebody carried the keys to the house, somebody carried the keys to the cryptic. I mean, so it was something that was very well planned and very well orchestrated at the same time. It was, you know, the academic gowns and all that kind of stuff. So it was full of pageantry. So there was the dedication, I guess, of the house and of the cryptic took place in the same ceremony, and uh-huh. poems were read, and hymns were sung, and so on. So it was it was a huge deal. Ockley always planned a big opening ceremony whenever she finished something. Uh-huh. That was yeah. always part of it, and so Vassar was no exception. Yeah. And yes, it had to do. Um, I went to Wellesley, and so I'm uh-huh. very familiar uh-huh. with yeah. the you know the kinds of things you know the May Day kind of celebrations yeah. uh-huh. and yeah. and so on that or May Pole, I guess is better phrase. And we all had our traditions
0: uh-huh.
1: that persisted, yeah. so I'm sure Vassar is very much Yeah, the they had
0: wonderful tableaus, especially at the uh, 50th anniversary when the new president was inaugurated. Uh, there was a tableau uh, that consisted of students portraying famous women in education, uh, going back to classical times, actually, you know, Greek goddesses, that sort of thing, but also, you know, the Middle Ages, et cetera, et cetera, so... Uh, it looked like yeah. it was a wonderful well, thing, the photos of it, so... Uh.
1: Well, Oakley was also involved in actual pageants, you know, yeah, historical yeah. pageants uh-huh. at the time. She did one for uh, Bronxville, for the opening of a hospital, and uh-huh. then she did another one for uh, for Philadelphia, uh-huh. so... Yeah. It was a pretty so, extensive experience in yeah. pageantry.
0: Yeah, we don't have that today. That kind of ceremony and performance around art—not the same kind, anyway. I mean, we have performance art, but it's not great public endeavors in the, quite in the same way, unless you know you want to count Christo and and. Um,
1: no, but we still have you know uh, convocations and. Well, that's uh, true. Yes, like we that. do yeah.
0: ceremonies. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Especially when a new president is inaugurated uh, anyplace well, that's true. at a university, yeah. There's yeah. a huge, usually
0: a huge. Uh, yeah. You know the mural there. You know it has the force of her ideas and her convictions in it, and the historical context for these is interesting. You mentioned suffrage; that's an important part of all this. Suffrage had just been achieved in the United States in 1919. As you said, building was uh, finished in 19. 19- 25, I think. And then, of course, the, the First World War had just happened. So, you know, there is this background depicted in the mural of the dragon, you know, the uh, absolute devastation of revelations. So there is something to be saved here. And if you put yourself back in the time, even in our own time, I suppose you could see this. Uh, it gives the whole thing a kind of force, doesn't it? I mean, this idea that there's something in the salvific force of, you know, sort of female, if you want to say, that might somehow lead us to something better than what we have in terms of uh, international relations. So
1: Yes, definitely. I mean, that was something that, you know, her interest in world peace is uh-huh. something... That was long, or, or, well, I wouldn't say long in coming, but it, it came to her over the period in which she was doing the, yeah. the Pennsylvania murals. Uh-huh. She started out, I mean, the first one that she did was the foundation of the state. And then she did one for the Senate, which was the creation of the state, which is basically the Constitutional Convention. Mm-hmm. And then the preservation of the state, which was the Civil War. Uh-huh. And then when she got the third one, when she got the one for the Supreme Court, she thought of taking it up to the League of Nations. Uh-huh. That she was very much in support port of, but it got defeated, of yeah. course, in the U.S. Yeah. So instead, she yeah. painted the International Court at the Hague, but that was painted in 1926, so that's directly after
2: oh, the World yeah. War One. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, her interest in this was something that was very intense. And as I said, she thought that she could somehow convince people that the American example of the Constitutional Convention and the way our government is organized could somehow convince the world that this was the way to proceed and avoid another great war, which, of course, it did not.
0: Yeah, Yes, uh, I think she believed with Wilson that the United States could be a model for peace and prosperity for the world. And then, of course, you could see Penn written all over this.
1: Yes, exactly, uh, exactly.
0: So then she has a later peace-oriented project in Geneva, doesn't she, that takes up a good number of her later years? uh.
1: Yeah, she's never been to Geneva, and she really wanted to go and see the League of Nations Mm -hmm. at work. And she thought that the League of Nations, even though we had not joined, she thought that they could still be a force for good in the world, so she went there. And I think, you know, as I said, she was good operator, and I think that she really did hope for a commission from the League of Nations, that she might get a mural in their building. But I think her, her work was perceived as too religiously oriented, uh-huh, yeah. probably for that, so she never got a commission, but she did draw and paint uh, most of the major players at the League. Over a three-year period, she was there from 27 to 1930, so yeah. she painted many of the participants. and. Later, she did a book uh, that uh, basically commemorated all of these players.
0: Yeah, uh, That was That's one amazing. way for her to make money to produce these books, wasn't it? She'd done yeah. with the Pennsylvania Project also. Um,
1: but usually she had very expensive days.
2: Uh-huh.
0: She had
1: very good days, but yeah. very expensive days. And usually so much money went into the high-quality Production, paper yeah, yeah, and yeah. the printing and the leather binding and everything that... He never really made much money off
0: of them. Now, these were commission books where you asked people to subscribe before you actually gave them the books. Yes, exactly, exactly. In this period then, in her later life, the, the United Nations does step in where the League of Nations left off, and the UN headquarters is built, certainly so, you know, after the Second World War, and I wonder, I'm not, not familiar enough with the artwork in uh, UN building, but she doesn't get chosen to do any kind of murals for that, does she? And then uh, neither, before the war, was involved with the WPA, where there were mural commissions, so I, I wonder about that. How she got overlooked when so many murals were being painted all over the nation?
1: It was partly her style. The style that she painted in, was the, you know, a kind of Beaux-Arts style, it was pretty old-fashioned by the late 20s and the early yeah. 30s. So she might not have been considered on stylistic grounds, but also she had been paid really well for the murals that she had done. It's interesting, in the, in the Beaux-Arts period, muralists were paid by the square foot. Uh-huh. And she got $50 a square foot for her
2: later uh-huh, murals,
1: yeah. which was what men like Abby got too. Yes, and yeah. that was nowhere near what the WPA no. got. Uh, so the, there's some, I guess you'd say a prospectus from yeah. the WPA in her yeah. papers in which she It does all the calculations, and it comes out to something like eight or ten dollars a square foot. So she definitely considered herself that was not enough money, and not enough prestige, and not enough status, and all those things. And she also wouldn't participate in competitions Mm -hmm. because she said her work basically should stand for her reputation. She didn't need to do that. And so that the whole spirit of the WPA, even though she was a great admirer of Roosevelt, the spirit of the of WPA was definitely not what. Yeah,
0: I know. No, it was set up so that artists could put food on the table, not to make artists wealthy, so... uh, Exactly, yes. Lastly, you know, I just, I wonder if you have any final thoughts about Violet Oakley, you know, can we learn, say, from her artistic career? Uh, Do you place any credence in her prophetic vision? Uh, You know, is she an artist for her own time, do you think, or a woman for her own time?
1: I certainly hope so. Yeah. You know, I hope that she her a little pieces, and someday we might get closer to it than we are today. Yeah. But it's interesting, I think she was, in many ways, she was out of step with her time. Mm-hmm. But in many ways, because she was not a modernist, but in many ways, she did reflect the period. I talk with my students, many of whom are studio art majors, uh, uh, you know, about yeah. does, does art, does art have the possibility to change yeah. the world? Yeah. I mean? and that was very much in the air in the after World War 1 and the 20s if you think about artists as different as Malevich or Mondrian uh-huh. I mean they very much yeah. believed in had an idealistic yeah. view of what art could do yeah. so uh, i think in our more cynical age We don't think so, but uh, we can certainly hope that it would would happen.
0: Yeah. yeah. There's something about this notion that we uh, can evolve to an international government that's ruled by a principle of peace that still appeals, especially, doesn't it? Yes. And as I say, you know, the Brexit and the European Union, she would have loved the European Union. So would Penn. I mean, Penn's essay that she bases so much on is basically a description of the European Union, you know, centuries before it came to be. Yes, Uh, exactly. And something, too, about the notion, uh, Feminist notion—you have to say—the uh, female spirit. I'm thinking of Carl Jung's anima here is what we need to make this happen. Still appealing, I think. So, uh, at least to us feminist literary critics.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Even though was, uh, others would say it was essentialist, yeah,
2: and so it is. On. Yeah, but, yeah. But so, yes, yeah. Yes, yes,
1: yes, But Oakley very much lived in an essentialist age, uh-huh. so uh, yes, she's she yes. not objected to that. Yeah, yeah,
0: she did. Yeah. So can you tell me if you have plans for another biography or what you're working on at the moment for the future?
1: Well, actually, uh, I'm retiring uh, in the Uh summer. I am, and I'm going to write a mystery. Uh, uh. (laughs) It's going to be based in 1906, because I figure if I know Uh. about any other period Uh. Uh of history, I know about the early 20th century in New York. And it's going to be very much based in the art world of uh, that oh, oh, So that's my oh, yeah. future plan.
0: Yeah, if the, if, the, uh, if the third book is a biography, the fourth book is a mystery, I think.
1: So. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. exactly. You
0: mentioned in one of your emails that you had 300-some students this semester uh, that you're teaching. I mean, at least. Yes, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah.
1: have that. I teach a large class of 300 students. It's the survey of the history of Western art. Uh. Uh, Ah. Which I took at Wellesley in 1970, uh-huh. so art in the dark, but uh. tomorrow we do the Italian Baroque. Oh, you do. <laughs> so.
0: And you do it all yourself. I mean, we do that here, but we have 10 people in the department teaching it over a period of a year or so.
1: That's how Wellesley did it, yes. Yeah. You know, I have somebody else in the fall. I don't have to teach the early stuff. Yeah.
0: Okay, so I want to thank you, Bailey, for coming on the show to talk with us about your book, Violet Oakley, An Artist's Life, published by Delaware University Press in 2016, and for t- telling us something about ourselves, you know. These things tend to get lost locally, you know. Sometimes you work in a building and you see something there and you wonder about it. And you may wonder about the building itself, but if you don't have access to research and if people aren't reminding you of the kind of narratives around the world we live in, it's uh, this is all lost to consciousness. And it's something we should be doing in the academy, you know, looking around us and talking about where we are. So, so we'll have to have you actually up to Vassar on the 100th anniversary of the Alumni House when it comes around in uh, 2025. I know you'll be retired then. It was great to have you on the show. Thanks for doing the, the interview.
1: Okay, great. I enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, me too.